Welcome to our podcast, Forgotten Victims, The Forensic Interview. Forensic interviewing traditionally has been associated with child victims. Over the past decade, there's been an evolution in the field of forensic interviewing where it's being applied to vulnerable victims of all ages, forgotten victims, victims with disabilities, mental health disorders, and older adult populations. On today's episode, I'm joined by one of MCG's fabulous senior consultants, Kate Homan. Hi, Kate. Welcome back. Hi, everyone. Along with the world-famous Julie Keniston. Um, Julie, we are excited to have you with us today. Um, since you're famous, many of our listeners may know you, but just in case some don't, can you tell our listeners about your background, please? Sure, but first let me say, friends, that I'm honored to be here with you today. Uh, Hello, listeners. So like Stacy said, my name is Julie, and I have been doing forensic interviews. We're rolling into year 31 for me. Uh, Historically started in the area of child protection and um, still do interviews to this day as a contract forensic interviewer on the side of my full-time job. Very nice. And Julie is um, a trainer like Kate and I, and travels all over the world teaching people how to do interviews. And that is in part why we wanted to have this conversation with her today. So Julie, what I'm curious about is what are some of the things that you're seeing in training that you think would be helpful for interviewers and investigators as we think about this multidisciplinary approach to investigation? Um, So like, what are you seeing and how do you think that we can help? It's a really important thought for all of us as uh, presenters in forensic interviewing, and then also as learners, because the first point that I wanna make is we have to be continuous learners. And and definitely the three of us are making that happen, reading the research and listening to other people and going to conferences and having these in-depth conversations. But I think the goal for learners is really about being a critical thinker as we are making decisions for each individual that we spend time with and have a conversation with about their life experiences. And that's the part that I think is missing a little bit. I think as we move through our training circles and we add more people to the family of our training systems, what I'm seeing a lot are that people are having difficulty in making really good decisions in the moment because they just do what they were told. And they don't think about the guidance behind why we talk about those things in training. You know, what's the purpose for us to do different things in the different steps of a forensic interview? So that's probably for me, my biggest passion point as a trainer with all the different people that I meet with and get to spend time with. So Julie, I love that you bring that up because one of the things that we talk about a lot in interviewing um, people with disabilities is that flexibility of the person in front of us. How can we customize the things that we know while still, of course, being uh, evidence-based in our practices to making accommodations for the person in front of us? And sometimes for the people we're training, it clicks really easily like, oh, I can do something different because this person has a disability. So we're accommodating for what they need in that moment. But I love how you said that we really need to do that for every person that's in front of us. And it's almost like people need that that permission to think about what pieces from the trainings that they've attended are going to work best for this 
person. So I, I love how you said that because really thinking about customizing every interview because it's not a cookie cutter because people are different. So thinking about how we can do that, but then there's also that scary part of people not wanting to do anything wrong. So how can we overcome that? Like, oh, I don't want to screw it up though, um, feeling that people might get. Yeah, I think for me, when I'm talking people through that, it's always understanding the why behind each skill that we're building or each component of an interview. Because the the downside of saying to people that you need to customize is that we can have people go rogue and they just make things up in the moment or uh, they go with their gut and there's not maybe a lot of experience or research or something behind some of those decisions. So I do think that as we move forward to really build skills and to do ethical practice, because ultimately that's what we're shooting for, is ethical practice and really being interviewee centered in that moment. It's not about being super creative, but it's about knowing what the limits are, the guardrails are in that decision-making so that we can customize. And I think that's the scary part because you know if we train too flexibly, then the question that we get from learners is just tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. Just tell me what to do. And if we do that, which of course we have the ability to do, it doesn't build that critical thinking piece that we were talking about. So what do you do in the moment? when you're presented with something that's different. So I do think for those of you that are learners out there that are listening, it's always pushing your trainers to the why. Why is it important that I do this? What's the purpose behind this particular thing that you're asking me to do so that in those moments that I have to make a decision that I can make it with knowledge and not just you know, guessing and potentially doing some of those behaviors that are a little bit concerning. Right. You're feeling like you can always do something because a trainer once told you it was okay. Absolutely. So that's the other piece of that too. We can't just sort of give, you know, quote unquote permission for people to do things if it doesn't make sense for that particular client or uh, scenario. Kate, I saw you smile when, when Julie was talking about, um, you know, really pushing trainers and people sometimes asking, just tell me what to do. I know that's something that people get really frustrated with us about. <laughs> so um, did you have anything to add to that, Kate? Yeah, the reason why I smiled in that moment is because I know in trainings, we get that question all the time. And one of the things that it made me think about was, you know, effective rapport development. I feel like a lot of times when new interviewers come into a training, they're like, yeah, but how long should I spend in rapport? And I'm never going to put a time on that as an instructor, because I think it goes back to those things that Julie was talking about with those critical thinking skills and taking a look at, all right, do I know that I've established enough rapport with the person that I've been speaking with? And if, I, if like, I'm looking at the, the evidence that I'm seeing, whether it's from the person's nonverbal cues or how they're speaking with me, or I'm seeing that like really excited feeling. And at the same time, I'm feeling very engaged with them um, and have developed a baseline for their communication. I'm asking myself all those questions internally so that I know the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing and then moving on in the interview. So I can't give them that solid, oh, spend 10 minutes, spend 30 minutes, spend five minutes in rapport development or any other part of the interview, quite honestly. So that's one of the things that it really made me think about. And I really like this like thought of applying critical thinking skills throughout the interview process. So Julie, I'm wondering what 
what could an interviewer do with these critical thinking skills and how can they use that throughout the interview process? Ooh, that's an interesting question, Kate. I think the baseline is to understand what it is that we're asking people to do. So it's first starting with the what. What is the thing, the skill, the interaction? And for your example with rapport, so what is it? And then how are we suggesting that it happen? And as a learner to think through, so if we've got a what and we've got a how, what does that look like for me as an individual? because we are tailoring it to the people that we have conversations with, but we also have to tailor it to our own art and style. Uh, I know you guys do this and I certainly do this. I'm not trying to roll out a whole bunch of little Julie Kenistons when I train people. I'm trying to roll out people that can apply their personality and their style in a way that works for the human that's sitting in front of them. So that's a lot of work. That's a lot of stuff that we expect new people coming into training to do, but I think if we start with the what, your example rapport, so how am I gonna do that? What does that look like? And then to really think through and apply this kind of purpose-driven approach. So what's the purpose of building rapport? The purpose of building rapport is to create an environment of conversation and comfort and hospitality for the person that's sitting in front of us. And so how can I do that with my own face and tone and pacing and body language and words that I use and the kindness that I can create and the lack of judgment um, to create a space that's safe for people. And it doesn't always have to be with my words that I do that. I don't have to say, I want you to be comfortable and feel safe. And you know, we don't always have to do that with our words. It can be through our style and the other ways that we communicate. So if learners are thinking about those things, what does that look like for me? How is that going to approach going to look for me? And then to critically think through what might I do when that doesn't work for somebody? What are the options? How am I going to change what I'm going to do? And you guys know this. It, it's just interesting is that when people try to say things exactly the way I do, it feels almost foreign to them because whether it's colloquial, because it's where I live and where I've grown up or uh, the way that I was trained or whatever, or there's some other reason, it just doesn't flow. And so for <laughs> me, creating a script for people, although it can be beneficial for learners that need those training wheels on their bikes, right? They're trying to learn how to ride a bike. They need those training wheels. They need those scripts. I think some scripts just don't match the person and their style. And so there's a, there's a mismatch that then feels disingenuous to the person that's on the receiving end of that. And so then they don't feel like they can trust the person that they're talking with. And I think we need to provide people with all of that information so that while they're making decisions, they can do that in a thoughtful way or in a purpose-driven way. And you guys have heard me say this and just report as an example, it's really about being confident and competent, but not creepy. And that word really resonates, I think, for people, because in the building rapport piece, that people do some things that are weird and creepy because they're not just leaning into who they are as a person or they're trying to be somebody else or they think they're supposed to say and do things and it just comes off. It's a, a mismatch with what the other person is perceiving. So figure out the what, what are you supposed to do? Figure out the how in your own style. Think about how it's purpose-driven. So what am I trying to do in this moment? 
And then really critically thinking about, you know, when this doesn't work, what are my options? Where are those guardrails? What is the level of flexibility? And then trying to apply that. Julie, you just made me think about so many things. So Kate, what a great question. And then Julie, your response has got my wheels just spinning right now, because I'm thinking about in training, like you said, not everything works for everybody. So sometimes, um, and I'm thinking about our training team right now in particular, you know, I might say something and Kate and Dermot are like, that doesn't work for me. I say it this way instead. And we give people options and try to model, letting them know it's okay if this thing doesn't work for you because you have other things that you could say, or is there something you already say? Let's check that out a little bit with our group right now to see if that's going to be something that you continue to embrace, or do you need to mix it up? So, and then people are like, oh, like, oh, I can do that. It's like, yeah, of course you can. Like, we can't think of everything. So your ideas are important too. So it goes back to what we talked about earlier, trusting your gut, but I like how you're encouraging people to stay within the guardrails a little bit. We don't have to be on train tracks, but we need to stay within the guardrails so that we're still being evidence-based in the work that we do. And I'm thinking about everyone from brand new beginner interviewers who are trying to figure this thing out and how, like you said, we need a little bit more scripting, a little more direction until you get the hang of it and get some good experience doing interviews with people. But then I also think about our super experienced interviewers. Sometimes when they take our training and we mix up the things they're saying, they're like, oh my gosh, I feel so robotic because I've done it so many times. And we break the brains a little bit and encourage them to rethink those words. And so it's like, and everywhere in between, of course, too, but that spectrum of experience comes in. Um, and I love doing trainings with people who have experience because there's just this collective, fantastic group of people who have done some of that critical thinking, but are also open to continuing to do that with each other. So you made me think about like the whole spectrum of like that learning curve, my own learning curve from when I started. Um, and how can we continue to be learners? I think that's one of the ways that I do it is learning from the people who take our trainings. Like, yeah, hopefully you're learning from me, but holy smokes, I'm learning so much from you. Uh, and then the networking and some of the things you talked about as well, knowing people like you that are in the field and being able to ask those questions, which is just so great. So um, I love that we think about the what and the why, and then the really it gets us to that how, which is the next step. Yeah, so good. Kate, that was a great question. Do you have another one? Well, I, I have another thought to add on to this from something that you said, Stacey. So you were talking about, you know, that feeling of more experienced interviewers walking in and saying, oh, I felt so robotic when they're doing something completely new. And I think another piece of this that we add on to that what and the why is being present, just being present in that moment. And honestly, I think forensic interviewers and investigators and whoever would really benefit from practicing consistent mindfulness and putting ourselves in the present moment with that person who's across from us. And I think that does a lot for us, regardless of the person that we're interviewing, disability, mental health disorder, someone who's typically developing for saying, what does this person need in this moment? And what is my purpose for doing the things that I'm doing, given those guardrails that we've had along the way? Yeah, that was something Julie made me think about too, Julie, because it's that intentional, right? Being intentional with our behavior. And I can almost hear interviewers being like, really? Something else to think about? <laughs> we already have enough to do. What were you going to add, Julie? I do think that even thinking about the history of forensic interviewing, most of the things that we've been learning along the way were to make forensic interviews legally sound. 
And so most of the research and uh, even the practice that we do is all about this interaction or this conversation that we have with a person being good enough that it can stand up in court. And the reality is most of our cases don't go to court. So we do everything to this standard of the what if, which I really do believe we need to do. We would never want to screw something up in that one situation where because of what we did in the interview room, it couldn't move forward and somebody could seek justice in the courtroom. But I think it's important to understand that equal or even more important than that is creating an environment for somebody to do the tough work that can start their healing process. And we spent so much time in the beginning days of forensic interviewing saying it's not therapy, it's not therapy, and it's not, it's a forensic interview. But gosh, how incredibly therapeutic to sit with a person who can listen to our experiences in a way that shows empathy and caring and non-judgment. And I think we're getting better at that. I think the further we move into this space and the more research that we have that guides our practice, the better we're getting at creating that balance for people. And I love what you said, Kate, it's that holding that space for them and being mindful in that moment. But we also wanna do it in a way that it can go forward in court, but I just wanna mm -hmm. put it in perspective for people that it's not only about getting to court, it's about this person's process during that conversation. So I call this the gas factor. Uh, you have to give a shit. And they have to believe that you give a shit. And that's the gas factor. Like if someone doesn't think that you genuinely care about them and what they're saying, then you lose all that gas. So it's good. See, it's a good little mnemonic device. It's, <laughs> it's okay. Device. Julie, yeah, we're rated, you know, M or whatever. So I can swear. It's fine. So, um, so yeah, you got to make people believe that you give a shit about them because that makes a difference. And if you're in there and you're phony and robotic, like he was saying, what are the chances they're going to have that opportunity to share with you for all the reasons we've talked about, whether it be forensic, therapeutic, combination of all, because it's hard to say exactly what that's going to be for another person, but for sure with those sound uh, forensic pieces in mind, but yeah, you got to give a shit because if you don't, people are going to see right through you and that's important. Yeah. It's phony, robotic, or even just going through the motions, because I know that folks are doing upwards of two, three, even four interviews in a day. Heck, when I first started my forensic interviewing career, we were so dang busy and understaffed. I did six interviews in a day sometimes. And at the end of the day, was I as good of an interviewer as I was at the beginning of the day? Probably not. But thinking about, you know, how can I fight that urge to just go through the moment, motions, even if it's the 1000th interview that I have done and really make sure that I am here with this person doing the things that they need through this process so that it can go forward. And so that, you know, I'm protecting that person and whatever those needs are throughout the interview process. Yep. So true. Julie, have you heard me say that before? You got to have your gas. I haven't. That was new <laughs> to me. I like it. That's funny. Julie and I have talked about this kind of stuff a lot. So I'm surprised you haven't heard it. I don't say it at every training, but if it comes up, it's one of those things it's like, yeah, you got to have, you got to have that piece too. You got to keep your motor running. Got to have gas. Well, you know, I'll turn it into a whole thing. Don't worry. Um, if I need to, <laughs> those visuals, I'm telling you, people really 
really remember those visuals. So sometimes you got to do what you got to do to get those mnemonic devices. It's good. It's a good, good acronym. Yes. <laughs> we do love acronyms at MCG. We do. This one. Yes. And in the MDT, you know, CAC world, we love them too. Even in the adult world, ATS. I mean, all those acronyms right now in our conversation. There's so many. There's so many. All right. So, Julie, what do you think as we are having, you know, people listen to this conversation that we're having? What do you want them to know from you um, about sort of having that, I don't want to call it permission, that feels too authoritative, but what what do you want to let people know about just having the ability to trust their gut, trust the science, um, and then cater to the person in front of them? Shoot, Stacy, that one's a tough one. So if we're going to be constant learners, all of us, you know, it's not just one and done, I think part of making that move to permission is understanding that there are a few things that are always, there are a few things that are never, but generally speaking, there aren't a lot of always and there aren't a lot of never. And the permission granting is really about knowing what those those things are. And when I say that, the always probably are not things that the three of us would teach but they're likely jurisdictional. So if you work in a jurisdiction that in order for a case to move forward in court, you have to do X, Y, and Z in the forensic interview, then for you, that might be in all ways. But what's interesting for us as trainers is we do the, yeah, but, yeah, but, and that's where some of the permission granting is, you know, yeah, but what if you tried this? Or uh, yeah, but have you considered these things? Or yeah, but I understand it's done differently in, in other jurisdictions in your location. So for me, I think that permission granting piece is knowing what the always are, um, knowing what the potential nevers are. And the nevers are usually things that are more ethical, if the ones that are coming coming to me. They're going to be things that um, if, we, if we're not creating safety for people, if we're you know, doing some things that could potentially harm the person in front of us, um, there may be things that are holdovers from a really old age that research has changed for us. But even then, you know, if it's purpose-driven, if we completely understand the reason why we're choosing to do something, uh, then some of those things that we might see as nevers may not be nevers. But I do think it's important for us to understand that we're making choices and that every single thing we do in a forensic interview is a choice. How I say hello, whether or not I meet somebody in the lobby first, um, how I do my interview instructions, whether or not I choose to provide examples for those instructions, how I work through my narrative practice, all of those things are choices and all of the words that I use are choices. And so there is a lot of a lot of stuff to think about and a lot of potential permission granting. So I don't know. I think for me, it's really about knowing if there are any always or nevers and then trying to figure out what that wiggle room is. But I do want to give a nod too, because um, people that have spent time with me know how much I appreciate the researchers that created NICHD, the National Institute um, for Child Health and Human Development. And 
they've changed our world. I mean, the amount of research that they've provided for us and the way that they've guided our practice is we can't even can't count it. We can't we could not in any way quantify what they've done for us. But I think we have to recognize that they were able to do that because it was a scripted model. And so everything was the same. If Kate did it, it should look the same as the way Stacy did it. And it should look the same as the way I did it. And that was important because in research, you have to be able to compare apples to apples and it can't be apples to oranges. So we do have a model out there that works and that's really researched. And so I understand that as the three of us are having this conversation about flexibility, that it also depends on the model that you're using. And if you are using a scripted model, then perhaps it's more of an always, you know, that these are the things that need to be said because that's the thing that you do in your practice in your jurisdiction or whatever. But even having said that, Heather Stewart, who I want to give a nod to, who has been a part of that NICHD research, one of the things that she's done in the jurisdiction where she teaches and lives and uh, supports people is to really look at that level of flexibility. So I guess I, I don't want to I don't want to create rogue people in this podcast because we're saying go for it, folks. Like do you? It's you know it's fine. I think there may be those always that need to happen depending on the process, depending on the jurisdiction, depending on uh, the model. But generally speaking, we've got some options in there. And the other thing that I would say is if you don't know, ask people who do. I mean, I, I think I can speak for Kate and Stacy and me, you know, bring it on. Let's have those conversations. Let's talk it through. Don't just, just go rogue or make a decision if you're really not sure that it's a practice that would be supported. So I think that's where my brain goes when you ask that very abstract question. That was an abstract question, but I think you did great. And you made me think about three things that I wanna highlight, probably more than three things, but three things I can remember I wanna highlight. The first is this is why in training, even though it's annoying, when someone asks a question, we always say it depends. It depends on these circumstances. So here's your permission. However, these are all of the circumstances that need to be met in order for that to happen. And then I also am thinking about how we do have protocols to follow. And some of them are more scripted intentionally than others. And that's okay too. But we also have to acknowledge that even if something is scripted or it's the way we learned it, new research could tell us that that's wrong. So that mentality of it's the way I've always done it or it's the way I learned could potentially be poisonous here because going back to our earlier comments about we always need to be learning. So acknowledging that something that we've done, you know, before wasn't the best way and maybe we've learned new ways. So like that, that's sticking with me a little bit too, because when there are evolutions or there are, you know, our new pieces of research, we have to be open to that because this is human behavior we're talking about. Nothing's going to be perfect. There's no way for us to be able to predict what's going to happen anytime. So having the, again, giving interviewers something else to think about, they're not going to like this from listening probably, but we've got all this training and then there's new stuff that comes up, but we also have to be critical thinkers, understanding every question we ask is intentional. So that's a lot of stuff for us to be doing, but it's all about thinking about it, making sure that we're learning new things, asking questions and having some of those, you know, debates. And sometimes people hear debate and it gets a negative um, connotation, but let, let's have that discussion. Let's have that conversation because that's how we're going to always do better by learning from people. 
Yeah, and I think the the NICHD researchers are the epitome of that. You know, when you look at how it was written in the beginning and some of the shifts to where we are now based on research and um, thoughtful conversations about how this stuff looks. And so I really appreciate that you said all those things. That's good. Yeah, and you also said apples to apples, and that always makes me think too, because sometimes people try to say that, you know, this protocol versus that protocol is apples to oranges. And I always like to say, eh, it's more like a Macintosh versus a Grady Smith. Like at the end of the day, you've eaten an apple, it just tastes a little different. So, you know, we need to be thinking about that too. And that, and I loved what I know you were part of, um, that white paper that came out where it was like, hey, we're more alike than different, you know, give us a chance here. And I think that that's been a huge, um, you know, revolution for us in interviewing as well. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because a lot of times people will say that that was a consensus paper. And I think you captured it accurately. It wasn't a consensus paper. We had, you know, people from different trainings across the country that were nationally respected and we were not all on the same page. And I do think that over the life of that project, over the life of the writing of that publication, we learn so much from one another that there tended to be a lot more stuff that was the same. And I think you captured that beautifully, but it always makes me giggle a little bit when people call it a consensus paper, because having been in the room where it happened, nod to Hamilton fans out there, uh, it, it was very difficult because we were not all on the same page. Um, but there are things that are research informed or um, you know, some of our practice, which is research-based that we could all agree on. So yeah, I love, I love the apples. That's good. I love you. See, I've got an analogy for anything, Julie. No, just, I'm proud. I'm proud just, of you. This is always <laughs> <laughs> always there's always something brewing sometimes they work sometimes they fall totally flat but the ones that work I definitely hold on and they're to, not so. all sports analogies which is good that's good I do have a lot of those too I, I <laughs> yes yeah hail me I say hail Mary a lot in training I do it happens awesome well any um final thoughts for our listeners Julie I think my biggest thought is what you do matters and so if you're holding space for the people that are in front of you, make sure that you're holding space for yourself too, to continue doing this work. Because I would love to see people saying the same thing. This is year 31, this is year 40. And not to go through that, that space of, oh my God, I absolutely hated it. Like <laughs> this, this is horrible. I, it has been such a... I don't even know how to say it. It's been an honor to be in the room with as many people as I have been in the room with as an interviewer and then also as a trainer. But it's also one of those things that it can really feed your soul. I mean, you guys get it. When you are in a space and somebody chooses you to open up to because you've created the space for them to do it, there's nothing like it. And I guess the, the advice that I will say to people though, because I've shared this in training recently and I, I thought it was important to share with other people, don't expect a bunch of thank yous. I think if we're doing our job really well, because it's not about us, it's about the person in front of us, they may not remember us when they see us in the supermarket. They may not remember if we end up going to court that we were the people that talked with them the first time. They may not remember if we interviewed them again two years later that they had been in the same space or talked with the same person. And we just have to look at creating that process as the soul fulfilling piece and not the add a girl or the add a boy or, or whatever as the soul fulfilling piece. 
but thank you to all of you listening for the work that you do for the people that you serve because it does make a difference. Thanks, Julie. We appreciate you spending some time with us. Kate, any final thoughts or questions for Julie? You know what? I don't think I could say it better than Julie said. So I will leave it with her final thoughts and just thank her for, for being our guest on the podcast today. Yes. Double thanks for me, Julie. You're awesome. Um, and it is a privilege for us to do our jobs for someone to sit in a room with us and tell us potentially the biggest secret that they've ever kept. So I think if we continue to see it as a privilege and an honor, like you said, that that's, that helps with the mindset. Um, but we definitely have to take care of ourselves because that's how you get to that, you know, three decades and counting mark. Um, cause otherwise, you know, we get a lot of burnout in this field and in this work. So, you know, keep up with it and thank you all for the work you do. And, uh, thanks so much for listening. And thank you to all of you. Thanks for listening. For more information about the work being done by Modell Consulting Group, visit our website, modellconsultinggroup.com, or follow us on social media.